Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Terrific. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, wheeler, dealer, horse trainer, arm wrestler, bon vivant, songwriter, string puller, manager of the Yardbirds, Bolan, uh, Japan, Wham, and many others, gastronome, strategist, weapons-grade gossip with a hair-curling story about absolutely everybody, author and brilliant analyst of 300 years of the music industry in his tremendous new book, which he will be signing copies of later. Please welcome the, the irreplaceable, the inimitable, and genuinely fantastic Simon Napier-Bell. Yes! There we go. We were going to have some lovely pictures up Can on the screen. Actually, Dave can hold them up. That's, we, that's how clunky we are. There's we, going to be a big screen with This pictures. is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. We're sorting out a bunch of pictures to use as visual stimulus during the next hour. <laughs> and we were hoping to have them on that, that screen. But as you may have noticed by the frantic uh, negotiations taking place in the break, we didn't manage to do that. So what I'm going to do is, as we show pictures, I'm going to hand this iPad round the room. Can you I'm see this? <laughs> and I'm going to trust go straight you out the door all. and onto the 94 bus. And yeah. <laughs> I'm going to trust you all to return it, okay? Right, fine. So there is Simon Napier-Bell, and uh, I think we can go, first of all, there's Simon's book, okay? Let's start by talking about Simon's book, shall we, Mark? Indeed, indeed. Well, I thought well, you were going to show a picture of, um, of the, the girl who recorded that song, am I right? Well, uh, okay, but Simon could start by explaining what led him to write the book, I suppose. That's a good place to start. That's a very good question, which I'm going to echo. <laughs> She's a brilliant sister, but Dave gives me an idea of a question to ask. I <laughs> Whispering in my ear. It wasn't quite totally decided to begin with. It was um, after I'd written Black Vinyl, White Powder, which is the history of the British music business from the end of the Second World War to today. I always had this niggledy feeling in my mind that maybe I should have been a bit more daring and gone a bit broader. And, and also, that was I wrote this book, which got amazing reviews, and nobody in America was interested because it's totally about the British music business. So I thought, the next book, I'd better do, make it more American. So eventually, I decided I would tackle it right from the beginning. I it's a ridiculous thing to tackle this. It was a vast thing, and I, I couldn't really see how you get it in one book. But I've always been inspired by a little book I picked up in a railway station about 40 years ago um, called History of the World by H.G. Wells, which is 288 pages. And just totally laughable when you see that title. But when you've finished it, you really feel you know the history of the world. So I thought, well, it can be done. And, um, which, you, which you had, though, because your book starts... I mean, this, it's fantastic. It really starts in about 1720. Seven, 1710. That's right, with, with the invention of the copyright law. 1710 was the Treaty of St. Anne, which introduced copyright law, which the, the government did really to protect writers of, of, of fiction and serious tomes of, uh, you know, uh, investigation <laughs> and discovery. And, um, and it was, wasn't tested whether it would apply to music or not until about 1780 when one of the Bach family uh, was ripped off by a publisher and took him to court. And the judge decided that since music could be written, it came under the same law. And really, that started the music business because there was one thing put into this treaty which was, which was totally meant to protect writers and, and made sure they would keep and own their copyright. 
uh, at least for 14 years in the initial stages. But there was a little extra clause which said, providing there was a written agreement signed by both parties, uh, the owner of the copyright, the writer, would be allowed to sell it. And, of course, that was the most disastrous thing they could have put in there because it meant that anyone who had written a song and couldn't pay their bar bill or wanted this week's rent, if there was a sort of um, slightly unscrupulous publisher nearby for two or three or four or five quid, he could buy the song. Um, and once so you're talking about sheet music here. Well, I'm this talking is about the form of it. I'm not talking, yeah, I'm just talking about the song. Yeah. You know? He could then uh, print sheet music and sell it, and, and it would, all the money would go to the publisher. No, nothing goes to the writer, and it was now the, now the publisher's song. Um, and that was the beginning of the music business. It was, it was, there, were two, there were two things. How to get the writer to sign you his song, and that was usually quite easy because the writers were usually broke and the publishers walked around with a tempting five pounds to give to them. Um, and the other thing, which is the conundrum, which is the music business has lived with ever since and is still the basis of the music business, how do you make it popular? And from the first day to the last until today, there is one way only, you spend money. Uh, it's usually called payola, but it's sometimes called something nicer. Um, but right back at the beginning, and initially at this stage uh, in the 1700, 18th century, um, the popular songs were Victorian ballads, Come Into the Garden, Maud, and things like that. The money from them was fantastic. Sheet music for Come Into the Garden, Maud, sold for three shillings. People went home and played them on the piano, didn't they? 60% of all middle-class yeah. families had a piano. And the sheet music Come Into the Garden, Maud, sold initially in 1814 or something for three shillings... Now, I know that's only 15 pence, but it's the equivalent today of something like £60 that's for a piece of sheet music. Yeah. Um, and the publishers took the whole lot because they just bought the thing out from the writer. But what they did is they paid famous singers of the day to introduce new songs. So when this famous singer had a concert, that you put in one new song or two new songs, and they'd get a bribe from the publisher doing that. And eventually they got royalties too. So the, the singers got the royalties, but the writers didn't. There's an absolutely fantastic bit, and I can't remember what the date was now, when the boomers were invented. This is just, a, just oh, no, so when interesting. When because... this got to America, it's yeah, all, all it's And there, the, the real thing in America was vaudeville. Is this not working still? just went off. I don't know. No, I think we're there. Okay. Um, and, and the thing in America was vaudeville. Exactly the same process took place. Uh, you paid a vaudeville singer to pop a new song into his concert. And, but they had pluggers there, and the pluggers in America just went out and sang in the street, that you'd pay a plugger and he'd sing uh, in the rush hour in Times Square, or he'd go on the station and sing it on the platform. You would sing your song, yes, really, in the yes, hope that people that, passing by would think, that sounds pretty out by the sheet music. Or, or they'd go into department stores and <laughs> sit at the pianos and play and sing until they got thrown out. Uh, anything to, to sing a song. And uh, one of the next things they decided, they got boomers, and boomers were, uh, you'd get three or four people who'd go into a vaudeville show uh, where the Affordable singer had been played to, paid to sing the song. And then when he sang the song, these boomers would all join in so that the audience felt, oh, you ought to know the song. It's too. such a brilliant idea, isn't yeah. it? Like, and then, well, and this then, must be a hit. I mean, everyone seems yeah. to be picking up immediately. To, when he got to the last chorus, one of the things I like to is the, uh, the singer on stage would suddenly forget the lyric. Oh, oh, oh you know, like the stutter. And one of the boomers would stand up and sing the lyric, you know, and everyone would applaud. Um, brilliant. It's caught on already. W- wonderful exactly. tricks, yeah. yeah. So the first of these... Uh, bunch of pictures that I'm, I'm actually going to pass around the room is this rather splendid lady here. So, you know who Lottie Collins. Yeah. Lottie Collins. Please pass it along. Yeah. The she, she's she's random. Lottie, Lottie Collins is this... You only need a quick look to get the idea of Lottie Don't Collins. read his emails. The, 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 source, the source of the book's title. Uh, Lottie Collins was a music hall singer. She went to America one day and while she was there, somebody gave her a rather nice song. She thought it'd be really good. To perform, so she came back to England, and it was Tarara Bumdie, and she wrote new lyrics to it, and uh, performed it. Uh, they said the she performed the uh, the verse like a virgin and the chorus like a whore. Um, so, what year are we talking about here? Eighteen eighty-eight or right, okay. And um, in due course, a writ came from the American publisher. Oh, and when she put the new lyrics, if she had it published in England with a picture of herself on the sheet music uh, in her whore pose. And uh, well, in due course, she got a letter from the publisher saying that he was the publisher in America. Um, and there was a court case. Now, America's never uh, accepted British copyright law, not till uh, the turn of the century. And so they would just take songs, music hall songs from England, get some new lyrics written, and just put them out as, as totally new songs. Uh, and didn't usually, didn't usually go the other way around. It's usually Americans ripping off the, the British songs. But in this case, the, the writ came from the Americans to the British one. Um, and... Lottie Connors has some rather good lawyers who found this was a very old 
uh, song, which would be way out of copyright, way beyond the 14 years people had done a song, uh, which dated back to the middle of the 19th, uh, 19th century, and uh, was a very bawdy, black, southern song. Oh, really? Which was sung in the most disreputable places. LAUGHTER uh, where a little sex was around, you know. And the lyrics were worse than any lyrics you've ever heard of Tara or Um And so they went to court, and it was, it was packed. The court was... Because Lottie Collins was a huge star, and the song was hugely popular. The court was packed upstairs and downstairs. And at some uh, inadvisable moment, the judge said, well, well, could you read me the lyrics of this song? Yeah, the, the, the original... Song, yeah. Can we hear Let the lyrics of the, the original song, the one the, the, the American publisher was claiming was his? And, of course, there were the filthiest lyrics anybody ever heard. And this is Victorian England. It was extraordinary. Do you remember what they were? And, no, I don't. They're repeatable. They were, but I'm sure they're not repeatable, even today. Even today. And uh, so the, the, um, the barrister for the, uh, the silk for Lottie Collins stood up and recited the very clear, clean British voice. And everybody was totally stunned. But then when he got to the chorus and said, Tarara boom dear, the entire gallery stood up You'll and joined in the song. In the court? Yes, the court, the, the Times... All swaying from one side to the other. Exactly, and in the Times it reported the, the chorus was sung five times through before the yeah. judge got control of the chorus. Real... Yeah. And he declared the song of the public domain, do what you want with it. Yeah. What a fantastic... Fantastic. Has, I, that, has that gone round the room? The, the next has anybody pinched it yet? Where is it? It's over there. Yeah, it's but, making its way back. You've got the idea, Lottie Collins, Come on. My, my, fe- my, fe- my feeling was this song and this court case and this boardiness and this disreputability of stealing. I thought that summed up the whole music business. That's Perfect. what I call the It's a brilliant title. It is the music business. But there's a brilliant uh, section that uh, really fascinated me because you made that extraordinary connection with the idea of the template for modern celebrity. But there's a character called Eva Tangue. Which is the next was a picture we're going to look at, about, actually. She's the next picture, actually. So uh, if, the, if nobody's nicked the iPad, <laughs> pass it back to David, he'll, he'll turn it on. But she, I mean, she was an outrageous showgirl from about she, 1910. She, she was the template. Tell us a bit about her. Modern rock song. I mean, if you read her story and, and what she did, what she, you, you immediately think of Madonna or Lady Gaga. I mean, yeah. they, they really sound the same. Um, she, was, she didn't sing very well. And uh, this is 1905. We really are another echo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, that part of the template isn't necessary. Really. No, not remotely. Um, as she shrieked and she screamed and she poured champagne over her head on stage, she wore the skimpiest dresses. She had one dress, although she was a big lady, actually, she's not so small at all. And she had one dress which was so skimpy when she pulled it off, she could actually screw it up and hold it in a her wisp. hand. It was yes. a wisp. And she had another dress made of one cent coins. And, and uh, she was very, very, she, she understood getting press better than anybody else. And anything which happened to her, she had jewellery was stolen or anything happened, she'd get it in the papers. And she, she made her notoriety that way. And there was a famous case once where um, someone ran in front of her. She was striding from the stage to her dressing room and she grabbed a hat pin from her head and stuck it in the person's chest. Uh, and, uh, which was pretty nasty and very assaulting. And they called the police. Pretty poor show. And, w- and when the police came, she pulled $10,000 out of her purse and threw it in their face and said, this is for you, I'm going for my dinner. Yeah, <laughs> but made sure she got it in the papers, didn't she? Oh, it's all Absolutely. the papers. The journalist was there waiting for her to do it. So, so do we get, the, we get the impression from stories like that that the early days of the musical, which we all like to think of as very cosy and antiquated, mm. were actually far more racy and provocative. Very, oh, incredibly racy. And well, even Eva Tanger had a song called Go As Far As You Like, yeah. didn't she? Yeah. Which yeah. She said fairly... that was one of her songs. And then yeah. even more racy than that was the Southern Circuit uh, for the black musicians. Because in the South, uh, they, it was, uh, uh, there was a circuit just for... The Chitlin Circuit. Well, I, I, I'm trying to think, no, I've forgotten the name of it. But um, it was literally for poor blacks in the South, it was 25 cents to go in, and you saw a three-hour show. Uh, and there was... Well, there was no control over it at all, and it was a lot more bawdy than the Northern musical, that's for sure. So the next picture, which we're going to look at, but it's going to take a while to get the, uh, the iPad back here, you're going to have to imagine, I can, miraculously, I can remember what the next picture is. There are people tweeting as you, Dave, on your machine, <laughs> tweeting about you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope there won't be an Ian Botham incident or anything. Um, the, uh, the, I think the next picture is Irving Berlin, who's ah. a kind of key figure in your, in your account. No, yeah, Irving Berlin. Well, he, uh, it was, I have to jump back and fill the story in. But at the end of the, the 19th century, there'd been huge boost in immigration coming from Europe. And amongst the immigrants, an enormous amount of Jewish immigrants, most of whom were middle-class uh, German or mid-European, uh, well-educated, many of them musical. And 
when they got to America, they were not going to get middle jobs. I mean, there were no jobs vacant at all. The only industry with any jobs vacant was the entertainment business, because it was a totally new business. Most of them got jobs as salesmen selling buttons or corsets or socks or whatever they could. And the ones who were musical started writing songs on an amateur basis. And one by one, or one, new songs, hit songs popped up written by these immigrant uh, German Jews who, who had a tremendous understanding of what popular music should be. It should be like buttons and corsets and toothpaste. You know, not something grand or artistic. It's what the public needed and you'd change it for, you know, to, according to what they wanted. And each one, as they got a hit, immediately became a publisher because they, they, when they got their hit, they found they didn't get any money. And so the next song round, they weren't going to lose again. So they nearly all became publishers. And in the 15 years from 1890 to 1905, every one of the old New York publishers, uh, very staid, British-descended, you know, called Jones and Brown, uh, they all disappeared and all the new publishers came along. Uh, and there were all these Jewish immigrants. And it completely, totally changed and boosted and energised the American music business. They, they had a knack for, for seeing music in this very commercial... But they all loved music and he too. Had, and he had a knack for, for thinking of the impact and the value of a song. Well, this was going to write an to, amazing song. What's going to move on to Irving Berlin? The point about Irving Berlin is he was not from this group. He was a, a Russian Jew, incredibly poor. The family were absolutely, had no money in Russia and suffered the pogroms, were, had their house burnt, were thrown out. So he arrived with nothing... And uh, when he was nine, his father died, and he decided he'd leave home because he just wanted to give his mother one less mouth to feed. Uh, and he lived on the streets, selling newspapers, stealing, stealing money, uh, and sometimes waiting in restaurants. And by the time he was 12, he was a waiter, full-time job in a restaurant, a full-time job, but terrible pay. He lived in a... They had hovels down, downtown where people lived in... They had little tunnel, little... little what do you call uh, Like tubes, people slept, and they played... 10 cents a night to sleep in a tube. And uh, you could wash once a week if you'd made it, got a few tips, and it was pretty dreadful. And his ambition was uh, to write music, and he became a singing waiter first, and he sang in the restaurant, and then eventually he wrote a couple of songs, and finally he wrote a song which which did quite well. Uh, And uh, it's a long story about that song, but what happened is he got a a publishing deal, not very good, but he got a publishing deal. But wasn't the title... Is it the one I'm thinking about? Was my wife's gone to the Well, yeah, that, that was the first hit he got. The, you know, the first... What I'm saying, the first one he got was a tiny hit, but it was enough to get him a publishing yeah. deal. Um, and, in fact, I'll tell you about the, the first hit. Uh, he'd written this... Uh, he'd written the lyrics to this song, and it was about... Uh, there was an Italian in the 1904 marath- uh, Olympic marathon... Um, who, when he entered the stadium, he was head of the race, and he tottered and fell oh, to yes. his faint. And the... And the People in the, in, the, in the stands rushed forward and helped him, and so he was disqualified. And Irving Berlin's song was about a, an Italian barber uh, who put all his money on this band winning, and they were all cheering in the barber shop, thinking he'd won, and then he was disqualified. And he'd written a song about it. It's a very funny song, very good lyrics. And he went off to a publisher and said, uh, look at these lyrics. And the, and the chap said, yes, these aren't bad at all. Uh, can you play me the song? Well, Irving hadn't written the tune yet. In fact, he'd never written a tune in his life. But it was $25, and he couldn't afford not to get $25. And so uh, when the man said, is there a tune? He said, oh, yes, of course, the tune's written. And the man said, well, would you come in the next room and we'll play it to us, you know? So, and he couldn't play the piano either. So, um, <laughs> so he went in the next room, and he sang. He sang this song, which he'd never sung. He'd only seen this song. He just instantly composed a tune there and then sang the song. And the, uh, you know, the arranger and the publishing company wrote it all down. And he got his $25, and it was a little hit, a very little hit. And he got a publishing deal. Right, now you can make another one, we'll pay you some more money. And then he wrote this song. Uh, he had this idea one night uh, to write a song called My Wife's Gone to the Country. And uh, he did it with a friend. They met in a barber shop, and they all thought, this is a fantastic first line, My Wife's Gone to the Country. And they sat all night thinking of clever words, My Wife's Country, she's left the kids behind, or My Wife's Country, she took the kids. My life, I'm, I'm all alone. He couldn't, it was all too many words. And then suddenly it came to him. In the middle of the night he woke up. So that's it. Hooray. My wife's got the country. Hooray. She took the it's children brilliant. with her. Hooray. It's just you really totally understand the point of the song. And it, was, yeah. and it was a number one song across America. And Irving Berlin became instant. Morris' 
he's been using this technique ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but he became a top writer. Instantly. Yeah, absolutely. And so, then, the, and the next thing he wrote, which was an extraordinary. This is a really important song. Was Alexander's Ragtime Band. He, for a long time, he'd been listening to black music and wanted to work some element of it into songs. He felt there was a there was a way these you know the, the traditional British, uh, oh, sorry, traditional English language American uh, pop song could be blended with uh, something much more forceful and black culturally. Um, and he wrote Alexander's Ragtime Band. Uh, the thing about Alexander's Ragtime Band is it's, it's not ragtime. Uh, until Alexander's Ragtime Band, every single dance tune always ever, going back as far as beginning of British, or beginning of European culture, uh, was written for military bands who played quadrilles and things like this, foxtrots. Uh, and the emphasis on the beat was always on the first and third beats. One, two, three, four, one. And all the dancing was done in that very forceful yeah. way. And if you think back to movies and things you see in old dancing, there's always that step forward on the one and the three. And ragtime, which was mainly black music, was also played in that tempo. But ragtime was played... Da, 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 yeah. da. But... Berlin did something on this song which had never been done before. He put the emphasis on the second and the fourth beat, which was the rhythm of African music. And the only place you could hear that was in New Orleans, because New Orleans was the only city which allowed slaves uh, to have uh, a musical party at the weekend. They gave over the Congress Square to the slaves. Every other city wouldn't allow slaves to congregate, but New Orleans allowed it, and so this music could be heard there. And Berlin had been there and heard this music. So he did the song with this beat, and it was the first song ever written with that beat, and it became instantly and forever after the beat of, popular, the beat of popular music. Absolutely. Going, going back to your, your first story about Irving Berlin writing that song to order, hmm. you know, in your experience of looking after artists, you know, the theory, some people say, you don't need inspiration, you need a deadline. You need somebody with a gun. Like your, your articles. <laughs> Whatever. Do you find that that's, that's true? Absolutely. I, I, if somebody says, you've got to do it tomorrow, you do it. There's so many songs. There's a great story in, in Jersey Boys about that too. They wrote a song in a taxi, their first big hit. It's incredibly common. Absolutely the right way. If you, if you have no deadline, you mull over it. You know, there's a song called uh, Sunny by... Uh, Bobby Hebb. Bobby Yeah, he took three years to write it. How? It's got four chords and 18 words, and it took him three years. <laughs> he didn't have a deadline, did he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it did do quite well, but he could have got the money a bit earlier, couldn't he? And well, the, the other thing... It took five years to write Hallelujah, didn't he? You're talking about the, the, the changes in dancing. That's something you touch on later in the book. Sorry, it's just jumping about a second. Um, you talk about that the, the disco music was designed for white people to dance to. Well, disco, I mean, the basic is we disco. Most of what we know as disco is four to the floor, solid beat. Uh, if you, in the mid 70s, the most popular dance music in the world to listen to and to dance to, if you could dance to it, was uh, Gamble and Huff and Gamble. And it was a very intricate black American music. With, I mean, it was, it was fantastic, beautifully rhythmic. But it was slightly complex. I mean, you, if you if you watch people who can really dance, they can just stand without moving their feet. And their whole body sort of goes with it. So it's soul trained dancing. Yeah, isn't but it? you know, like Europeans them. couldn't do that, and especially you know, British could almost do it. But you get to <laughs> Germany, and nobody could do it. You know? <laughs> and um, and in fact, it was it was it came from a chap called Peter Meisel who ran Hansa Records in Germany. And he was a he was at a wedding in Bavaria one day. And uh, he noticed how always people who were completely incapable of dancing in a disco when records came on were dancing quite well at the wedding, uh, which had a boom, boom, an umpa band with a boom, boom, boom. So he got back to the office and he thought, if I took all these songs I've got um, and put a boom, 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 everybody know where, you know, you, you move your feet on the boom, boom, boom. And, uh, and he talked to his, uh, his resident producer at the time, who was Giorgio Moroder, uh, who then made two or three records like that. And that literally started the fall to the floor thing, which still goes on today. And so disco was really created for, to help people who couldn't dance dance. Right, right. Can I can I just get get because we want to talk to you about the you know the yardbirds and bowling and all your management stuff? But can you explain when I last saw you, you had this wonderful theory about Larry Parnes and Larry well, Parnes and the new generation of managers meeting the the post. Uh, I, I think know, my, my theories are beyond the theories. They're <laughs> real facts. They're, fact, they're not theories. That's <laughs> terrible. It's a fact. Um, Larry, Larry Palms... Explain that about you. Well, Larry Palms was gay, and he was a middle-class... Uh, he was Jewish, middle-class, gay, and rather, uh, you know, introverted. He had a, a, a shop in Essex selling women's fashion, uh, and he was 
uh, he became a pop manager. Uh, long story, that's not really the point. He, he, became, a, he became a manager, first of Cliff Richards, uh, which is quite brief, uh, and then he moved on to several other people, uh, Tommy Steele and um, a whole range. But bit by bit, he gathered a, a group of singers, uh, which is his stable of singers, and they all had hits. And he gave them names, Marty Wilde. He gave them very tough second names, Marty Wilde, uh, Tommy Steele. Uh, That's his whole idea of doing it. But the fact is they were supposedly rock and roll singers. I mean, they were actually just pop singers who had a little more edge than some of the other pop singers around. Um, But he became very successful. And at that time, homosexuality was illegal and, and... Totally legal. There was no. It was really. It wasn't any chance at that time that it was going to be legalised. Uh, and if you were gay and in your early twenties or just leaving school and you were looking around for something to do, and you actually wanted to be able to live your life openly, there really was nowhere. I mean, you, you could become a hairdresser or you might go in the theatre or possibly the civil service, which had a lot of kids. But you weren't <laughs> going to live openly anywhere else. And so when Larry Parnes had his success with all these pop groups. Uh, although he wasn't known to be gay amongst the general public, you know, gays all knew he was gay, and they all looked at it and thought that there might be somewhere else we could work. I mean, obviously, uh, in the music business, he's not having any problems being gay. So, And so a lot of uh, young entrepreneurial gay men thought this would be a very good thing to do and worth looking. At exactly that time, uh, national service stopped. Now, there had never been uh, an English beat group. They were called beat groups then, not rock groups. There had never been an English beat group uh, under the age of 23. The Shadows, you have to remember, when they were successful, were all well into their 20s. Because they'd all been in the army. Because yeah. as, soon as, as soon as a group got together, so they'd leave school, uh, right, let's form a group, 18, and about three weeks later, one of them or all of them would get their papers to join the army. Taken into the army, two years later, they were dumped out as adults, and they didn't have all that teenage excitement anymore. Yeah. And there'd never been a beat group. But when national service stopped, um, all these kids who left school and thought they'd like to like to form a beat or a rock or soul or rhythm and blues group, copying American groups, could now stay together. And after a year or two of staying together, they got quite good and they wanted a manager. And at that very moment, a huge influx of young gay entrepreneurial men were looking for groups to manage. It's very fascinating. And the end result was the first first five years of the sixties, virtually every single group was managed by. So that be Kit Lambert with the Who. Brian Epstein with the Beatles. Brian Epstein the Beatles with me with the Yardbirds. You with the Yardbirds. Uh, and uh, Andrew Oldham. Andrew Oldham with the Stones, the Stones who prefers not yeah. to admit he was now. But, uh, <laughs> okay, but, uh, we can edit this bit out. Yeah, he won't mind at all. <laughs> I mean, look, he won't look, mind. He'd be look, absolutely look, thrilled you were talking about people it. People change. Yeah. Andrew did change, but he was pretty bisexual that time. Um, and the point was, uh, and this was a huge part of what created rock music, because there was no rock music. This was rock and roll, and rock and roll really was part of the old Tin Pan Alley thing. I mean, you called it rock and roll, but the same people wrote the rock and roll songs as were writing the dreadful schmaltzy love songs for, you know, for the big band singers. Uh, it was all the songs all came from Tin Pan Alley and the, the artists or groups or singers didn't write them themselves. But also the managers had a really good idea of Well, the point, about the, man- the point about these gay managers is it was against the law. So if you're, if you're living your life against the law, an absurd, stupid law, uh, you're going to think other things are absurd and stupid. I mean, there, there were less less interested in following the drug laws. They were less interested in a whole lot of things. And they were very provocative to the groups. I mean, it was the whole thing about smashing up hotel rooms. and things. It didn't come from the groups, you know. I mean, it came totally from the managers, a good bit of publicity. I mean, when Kit Lambert first said to, to, uh, to Keith Moon, you ought to smash your hotel room. I mean, you know, this was... They hadn't been in hotels. This Keith Lambert was going to hope for an early no, night. Keith not, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Keith said, oh, oh, no, it's rather nice, my room. Yes, I, was, yeah. I like it as it is. And, just and finally, like after it. a lot of, lot of frustration, he turned a chair over and Kit came in and sort of smashed it. You know, um, the managers were very outrageous and they pushed this, this, they pushed this sort of uh, outrage into the groups. It really came from being, if you like, outside of the main, yeah, main circle of, course, of the north. Yeah, of course, yeah. Talk about Brian Epstein for a moment. It was, was going to be one of my pictures, but everybody knows what Brian Epstein looks like, you know. So... With your experience of managing groups, I was getting the impression with Brian Epstein, he kind of fell in love with the group. He was devoted to them. Uh, he was to the incredibly similar to Larry Pons. Second. Um, unbelievably similar to Larry Pons. Jewish, middle-class, provincial, and he had a store. I mean, it was almost a, a duplicate Larry Pons. And Larry Pons, believe me, fell in love with all his young, you know, this little stable of rock singers. Um, 
I think he was more overtly in love with them than, than Brian Epstein. Uh, but, you know, Brian Epstein was a lonely person and suddenly had this little group of people who, who he was part of. You know, he was, he was in a club. He was, had friends. And he was certainly obsessed with them. But I'm not sexually obsessed. You know, no, no. These, these were his friends. And, uh, and that's why he went on and on and on and on and got them a deal. And, you know, you can look at a manager in many lights. Was he a good manager once they had to do? Was he, was he really good at business and, and uh, making the most of the money they earned? Probably not. But there's a lot of aspects to a manager. And the one key thing is, can you break your act? Because if you can't, there won't be any money. And he did. And that allows him to be considered a great man. But it was Epstein, wasn't it, who told the Beatles that when they went on stage in, whatever it was, 62, they should wear matching uniform suits and ties. Of course, I mean, they, they were all... eat, they, drink, all been to Hamburg. or eat yeah. on stage. Isn't that brilliant? They used to come on stage with meat of pies in, in, in Hamburg. <laughs> They'd all been you know, in Hamburg. Smoker, walk, smoking, swearing, speaking, he, he, What he wanted is he wanted to make them look nice enough to take home and uh, introduce to his aunts, you know, who, who'd have afternoon tea. And uh, that meant they had to take off these leather jackets and mess and jeans and look all nice and black. Which and is the genius of Andrew Oldham with the Stones. Who did the other thing, who went the other way. But, you know, uh, uh, Brian's thing was uh, you would say thank you after every song and you were yeah. nice to the audience. And so this was quite new and everyone loved it, but when they got bored with it, the Stones came along and Andrew said, no, you say fuck you to everybody and don't talk to them and wear tacky clothes and piss on the wall outside. Um, so... He, he just reversed the whole thing. So what was your first, first experience of management, and what kind of manager were you? Uh, my, first, my first... I mean, I, I, I was admiring these people. I wanted to be in... I was, I was in the film industry. I, I was an assistant film editor, uh, pushing my way out through the, sort of the lower echelons of A-list society, because I, I was lucky enough uh, to work on a film with Burt Backrack, and I edited... This is on What's New Pussycat. And he, he didn't know how to write a film score, although he was this hugely successful songwriter... And when I gave him the, you know, it was my job to, to measure up the 50 places in the film where a piece of music came and deliver it to him. And he wrote 50 songs, and it wasn't a film score. And the, the producer and the director of the film were, were just desperate because they only had six weeks to, to the film being premiered. Uh, and they had a contract with Bert. They said they had to, re- leave, had to use his music. And he went back to America, and they said to me, what do we do? And I said, well, it's easy. You throw away 48 songs and use two and make a score because a score has to have a flow and, a, you know, it has to resounding back, resonating back to the main theme. So I had an incredible time. I, I spent four weeks, the happiest weeks of my life, creating a score out of Bert's fantastic music. Um, and uh, it made me a lot of money. I mean, a huge amount of money, because in the film industry, after you've worked eight hours, you go into double t- time and a half, and after the eight hours, you go to double time. And after that, every eight hours is double the previous eight hours. And I stayed in the cutting room. Why did you leave? I stayed oh, in the cutting room. I finished the bloody film. I finished the bloody film. I stayed in the country for four weeks. Why would you go from that to managing the Yardbirds? I don't know. Well, you know, (laughs) this is the next bit of the story. Anyway, I bought a very nice car, Ford Thunderbird convertible. And... um, and by this stage, with this money, I was... What, you, what year were we talking about? 1965. Right. And it cost... And I could you, a fourth hand of cost more than a new Rolls-Royce. And it was about the stupidest buy you could ever make, a second-hand That's not a Honda little, Civic. But, but it was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, the trunk, the, you know, the, the, the boot went up and then the, the thing came back and went in the boot. It was very flash. And you just had to stop in the street and do that and you could pull anybody, you know. Uh, and um, but I was I used to go to the Ad Lib Club, which was the disco where everybody went. It would be full of film stars and Peter O'Toole and Beatles and anybody uh, who was happening at all. And all my friends were in the music industry. Um, when I went home at three, because I had to get up and go to the film studio and edit films, they were all stayed on. And I said, "Well, how come you don't have to go? I mean, what do you do?" And they all said, "We're in the music business." So I thought, "Well, that's this is the sort of business I want to be in, where I don't have to go home." So when I Brilliant. When I That's bought the crazy. Thunderbird, I, I drove off to the Ad Lib Club one night, and uh, unlo- unbeknown to me, that um, an aspiring young group saw this car and saw me arrive, and presumed I must be a, a rock manager because who else would have such a gauche, extravagant piece of rubbish? And um, <laughs> and then a couple of hours later, when I was sitting in a corner with a large cocktail and nodding away, I even now can remember it was it was Gloria by then. I was nodding away, and they came over to me and asked, will I manage them? And I just couldn't hear what they said. It's so loud. <laughs> and so they all turned up the next day and said, you know, my office, and said, you know, I th- thought you were going to manage us. And I thought, this is a rather good so idea. So that's the Yardbirds? No, no. That was a group called Room 10, and it was three boys who were in dressing room number 10 at the <laughs> Prince of Wales Theatre in a show called... I can't remember. 
But anyway, it wasn't much of a show. John Barry wrote the music, and it was a flop. Um, but they, did, they wanted to record one of the songs from the show, and um, I did it with them. Uh, and it was, it was useless. I mean, nothing got nowhere, but I was now a manager. And that's, that's so who was your next client? Uh, two, uh, two, a duo, Diane Ferez and Nicky Scott. Diane Ferez was a, a young, very beautiful, petite black girl from the West Indies, and Nicky was a, a young, blonde, very good-looking guy. I think he was a rent boy, actually. But uh, <laughs> I um, didn't inquire. Well, you know, well, I, I sort of knew because I, I, you see, they, they were sort of impinging Different on my life. I, I. <laughs> I'd met Nicky one night and, and, and in, 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 a, in a moment of great sort of pleasure. Uh, <laughs> I said, you know, you must do something with your life. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm a pop manager now because I'd had this from, you know, maybe I could help you. And so he kept turning up the office and saying I, I'd promised him something. And then uh, in one of my more bisexual moments, I'd done much the same with Diana. She kept turning up the office and I thought, bloody hell, I'll put them both together and solve yeah. two problems, <laughs> kill two birds with one stone. And so I went and made a record with them. Uh, and I didn't know anything about pop music or writing record. I actually stole, I stole Get Off My Cloud from the Stones and rearranged it with lots of brass and wrote some silly lyrics about I love you and you love me. And nobody noticed? It went to no. number five charts. And so then the Yarbers called me up and said, you seem to know what you're doing, would you manage us? So I said, yes, please. So who and was wasn't the, the problem with the Yarbers? That the, 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 was Jeff Beck and Jimmy Beck, uh, later on with Jeff. No, no I, I brought Jimmy in. Je- Jeff was in the group. But they were both playing the same parts. Yeah, well, that's, what happened is, yeah. when I took them on, I really knew nothing. I mean, the Yarbers had been a top... They were a number three group. There was the Stones, the Beatles, and the Yarbers were the three top groups to all. And I knew nothing about the music business, really. And I'd only knew... I, musically, I didn't even know about pop and rock. I liked jazz, and I'd been addicted to jazz since I was about 11. So suddenly I had this group to manage. I, I mean, it, it's not that I'm not quite clever and sharp talking, but I didn't know. But in a way, sometimes not knowing is good. So I went off to EMI and told them the group were out of contract. They'd signed to EMI through their previous manager. So I said, well, you know, when they left that manager, the contract's invalid. They didn't even check. I think they were so concerned and I was so definite that they just thought, well, better to sign them again than and argue. And I asked for more money than had ever been paid and I asked for a higher percentage had never been paid. But it wasn't because I thought I was being clever, because I didn't know. I just thought, it sounds like a good amount of money. If and I'd known all... about the music, I'd have known you couldn't ask for that much. So sometimes not knowing is quite good. Yeah. And I got it. I mean, they got 25,000 advance, which is the biggest advance ever. Huge by five times. And they got the highest royalty, they got 14% royalty. And the, they owned the tapes. They weren't owned by email, which has never been done. The Stones hadn't got it, the Beatles hadn't got it. But that's only because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so that was good. Then, lots of internal friction. Huge friction. Yeah. And of course, because I, I didn't know that? what I didn't know is the one thing with a rock group which you have to do is keep them together. So if you ask um, me what the manager's most important job with any group, keep them together. Even if they're a new group, keep them together long enough and they'll start making some music and get noticed. And don't let them break up. But I didn't know that. And um, Paul Samuelsmith, the bass player, we, we were in Paris doing a gig, and he said, I hate live works, the horrible thing, I'm utterly miserable. And I said, oh, you poor chap, if you're, if you're miserable, you shouldn't do it, how awful for you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you should leave the group, we'll get somebody else. Uh, idiot, I was. Uh, and then they all discussed who they should get, and Jeff Beck wanted Jimmy Page to come. And I knew Jimmy Page well, because uh, as a songwriter, I used him a lot doing sessions, and I wrote songs, he was a session guitarist. And I just knew that if he came in, Jeff would eventually leave. I just said, that that will be the end result. And Jeff didn't believe it. He said, no, he's great, and we'll get on wonderfully well. (laughs) So he came in, in and and I had the idea of putting him on opposite sides of the stage. I mean, there was, you have to remember, no sound desks in those days. What what you heard when you went to a gig came off the stage. You had amps, and you had to... Before the gig, you had to go and balance it by standing the horse. No, push, push that app up, you know, push, you know, turn them up and put another one over there. Um, and so by doing that, they were playing in stereo, something which no other group could have a guitar in stereo. And it was phenomenal. And we did a tour with the Stones. We did the first hour and the Stones did the second hour. We opened at the Albert Hall. And it was unbelievable to, to hear these two guitars in stereo playing Jeff's solos. But it was unhappy from the first day because... Jeff was now having to share the applause on his solos, and Jimmy Jimmy's was having to play somebody else's Jimmy's part. playing somebody else's part. Yeah. This is a and from that moment on, in hell. So, <laughs> yeah. so, have you found your experience that kind of jealousy, professional jealousy, is the besetting sin of musicians? Uh, yeah, I mean they, they don't always express it or even allow it to be showed, but it usually is. But you see, the the point is, groups often what, what creates what, what causes creativity in a group is often that tension. 
And you know, by making the group happy, they were much less creative. The tension really created the, the music. I mean, Jeff Beck's greatest solo with the Yardbirds, uh, I think it's called, a song called The Naz Is Blue. We were making the first studio album, and they didn't get on with Jeff. Jeff didn't like them, they didn't like him, because Jeff was a real musician, and they were not really the same class musically. And uh, with their instruments, they were not the same class. And he, he, he didn't get on at all with them, and uh, they didn't give him a solo, they made a whole album, and Jeff didn't even have a solo, and then eventually they did what, a blues track, and they said to Jeff, 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 here's your solo, now you can shine, now here's your chance to be somebody. And he was so pissed off with me, he went through the thing, and they were all watching to see him play the studio, and he played one note, and looked through the glass, and just held on that note. And that is the finest 12, 24 bars genius. of one note you yeah. ever <laughs> So he, they caused, that tension caused this amazing track to be made. Did what you have did... an opportunity to hang on to be part of Led Zeppelin? Because the Yardbirds kind of eventually turned no, into I mean, Led Zeppelin. No, I mean, they became Led Zeppelin when I got rid of them. They were too much for me. I, you know, the tension was huge. I, I, was, I really didn't know what I was doing, even, even though I was learning. Uh, you know, I didn't understand the music still at that stage. And they were... And, and Jimmy was a very difficult person to deal with. Why? They, As a surprise. Cause he just because <laughs> just he was a pig. I mean, he was, he was very unpleasant. He's become a lovely, charming, grey-haired... I mean, he's delightful now, but he was really horrible. And, and Jeff and him argued the whole time, and everybody else argued. And, and, and I had a disaster with Jeff because I got them a, a part in Blow Up by Antonioni. And he'd wanted The Who and... Uh, I told Kit, Kit told me, Kit, was, Kit Lambert, who was the Who's manager, told me one night, and he was my best friend, he said, I'm going, Antonioni's in town, he wants the Who to play in, in uh, Blow Up, his new movie about London. And I was jealous, I wanted the Yarbers in it. So I said to Kit, look, you mustn't give way to, and you must ask for a lot of money, because the Who are really worth it, you ask for £10,000. <laughs> and tell him you want editing control. Now, I've... <laughs> Ed, films was my background. I knew films backwards, and my dad was a film director. I'd seen all Antonio's films. One thing he'd never get when I give up was any editing control. And so, half an hour with him, and Kit was kicked out, and the Who were not going to be in the movie. And I called Antonio and he said, "I've got a, a better group than the Who. They'll be perfect." So I went round to the Savoy Hotel and I saw him. We got on rather well. And I said, I, you know, "I don't know about editing, and we'll do it for free. I just think, you know, I want you to have the best group because I love your films, and you know." <laughs> So he, he fell for it. Um, but then we got to, we got to the studios, the Elstra studios, and he wanted Jeff to smash his guitar. The Jeff smashing guitar was like Keith Moon smashing hotel rooms. Like, this is treasured thing, this yeah. beautiful guitar. And uh, so it was a compromise reach. He couldn't actually smash his guitar, but he, we'd give him a second one, which wasn't his real treasured guitar, and he would shove it through the front of the amp. And that was quite dramatic and good. And, and Antonio was happy and the film looked good. And there were about eight takes... And Jeff quite liked it, so that was all right. Then we went off to America. After we'd done our Looking Stones tour, we went to America for a big tour. Jeff had got the habit. The very first night, he took the guitar and he shoved it through the amp. And it's a Marshall amp. There were 18 Marshall amps in America. We had four of them, and there were 14 more. And the tour lasted 14 more nights. We ran out of Marshall amps, and that was it. And Jeff left the group. Oh. I wanted to ask, well, certainly in the context of Mark Boland, who you managed after that, but what do you think the characteristics are that a star requires? What are the key well, things that you, you need what would to achieve I look that level of success? What would I, well, yeah, what are we looking for? Well, the first, the one overriding essential thing you look for in someone who comes to you and says, I want to be a star, I think I am a star, is a total obsessive... It's a huge drive an obsession with becoming a star. So to the degree they can't even see life without being a star. If they fail, they're going to kill themselves. It's that drive, that vast motivation, which makes it happen. It's not me. I'm not voted. All I do is I, you know, I've never had any motivation, really. I'm somebody who just likes to breeze around, see what's going on, sit and have a coffee and see people pass by. And so what I'm good at only works when it's coupled with somebody who's got this huge drive and wants to get somewhere. And so from the beginning, I mean, I found... I found rock stars and pop stars rather easy. And they'd come to me and say, you know, I want to be a, a pop singer. And I said, well, have you had some singing lessons? Oh, fucking hell, man, you're a genius. You should make <laughs> And so it went. You know. Have 20% immediately. Yeah. Um, but it, it, is, it is that 
dual thing. It's, so I need that. That's the first thing I look for when someone comes to me. Of course, you want them to look like a star. I would put singing and songwriting way down the list because uh, they've got to look like a star. They've got to carry themselves like a star. And they've got to absolutely overriding they need to be a star. So they've got to be a bit mad. They're certainly mad. And, and the, the characteristic you get everywhere with every artist who's really an artist ever uh, is they, it's extreme imbalance uh, between total self-confidence and actually absolute disbelief in themselves. So that they're, they're one minute they stride out on stage in front of 200,000 people, they couldn't, not in full face, and now they sit in the dressing room and they're frightened just to, to look out the door. Um, they all have insecurity to, up to their eyeballs, you know, coupled with this sort of self-belief and self-disbelief. It's, they're, they're, they're all mad, yes. Right. <laughs> Tell the story when, when Bolan rang you up, because it's so interesting, because there's, there's an example of somebody who had incredible self-belief, didn't he? He absolutely... Yes, but he, but, he, but he also had the other thing too, you know. Yeah, he, true. You know. Well, he just... I mean, I was at home, uh, this one I was managing the others, and I got a call one night saying... Um, I'm a pop singer, and I, you know, can I come and see you? I mean, you get calls like this constantly all the time. Uh, and I said, well, just, you know, just. Um, he said, I've got your address. So I said, oh, well, I, I prefer not to give it out, but he's got it already. I said, just deliver a tape. Uh, that's fine. I'll listen to it, and I'll get back to you. And then he said, well, I haven't actually got a tape, uh, but I've, um, I've got a guitar. And then literally, as he, with two minutes later, he knocked on the door. So he was obviously downstairs when he made the phone call. Um, and he looked quite interesting. He looked like a sort of Dickensian urchin dressed in funny... Tiny. Tiny, very tiny. small, and, and tried to make himself look smaller. He liked to be small. Yeah. A big guitar. Um, and I thought, well, we'll get rid of this one quickly. Uh, all right, sit down, play with the songs. <laughs> well, because they, they... You know, these people who want to be stars usually aren't very good. I mean, they hadn't... They, their desire to be a star... Uh, they jump at it too quickly. They don't usually practice any music first. Ninety percent of the people who I think look awfully good who could be stars. They, when you listen to what they've done, they, they, they can't sing and they haven't made a proper record. And I just thought he'd be one more like this. Uh, and he chose my biggest armchair, a huge armchair. He sat in it, cross-legged, it, up, you know, with his feet up on the chair, and got his guitar out. Bloody cool, but... <laughs> and um, and started playing songs. And he could only. He, he only had two chords and he had a capo on the guitar and when he wanted to change a chord because he couldn't do more than two uh, he'd, he'd tap the guitar so he'd sing a little bit and that's time for a chord tune he'd say dot 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 and while he's dot dot dotting here he'd push the capo up and he could play the next chord <laughs> and he was brilliant at it I mean he was so brilliant at it he thought if he could do that why couldn't he actually learn the chords uh, but he, he, he sang for 45 minutes I was entranced absolutely amazed and at the end of 45 minutes, I stopped. I said, we're going to a recording studio. We went right there that night to a recording studio and recorded the same 45 minutes of songs and a few more, uh, which was eventually released... Which you eventually put out, didn't you? Yeah, well, it was released like that, years later called The Beginning, of, death, Dub, yeah. beginning of Dubs. Yeah. And then when he died, I redid it again. I went back in the studio and took all those tracks and did what I thought he might have done with them electronically <laughs> and then released it again, which is out. It's called Cat Black, which is named one of the songs on Cherry Red Records. Do you have any kind of bad conscience when you look back at your relationships with artists in any way? No. Not at Art, all. Artists are so difficult and so annoying that, <laughs> that you can only feel saintly that you ever bother to look after them. I mean, they, have, they, they can be lovely people and they have nice moments. And the whole period you're with them, they are like friends because, I mean, you, you can be with an artist for a year or two years and you probably have dinner with them almost every, if you're on tour, almost every night. And it's always good and there's always stuff to talk about. Then if you start managing them, you find you, you never see them again. You, you don't want There's nothing to talk about. Because what makes them... They're totally self-obsessed. So every night you're talking, you're, you're discussing their career and plans, which is fun, it's exciting. You know, it's my job to do it, and it's interesting to do it. But once, once you're not managing them, there's nothing to talk about at all. And they are just that. They're self-obsessed. The biggest or the smallest, that's how they are. Yeah, did, did you feel it was worth continuing with Japan for as long as you did? I mean, well, they, look, I, I, I was stuck with Japan five years before they had a hit. And uh, no, I think that's bad business. I, I think if you're a really a, a sensible or ruthless businessman, you, you know a point when you give up. I mean, I'm not very good at that. I got stuck. And there was a moment after three years when I'd invested nearly a quarter of a million pounds. And you know, this is the 70s. It's like putting in two million now. It's just, I just didn't know what to do. I mean, they were charming, nice, you know, fantastic. Fantastic musicians. And also, when you put in that much, you don't want to give up because yeah, anything well, could be tomorrow that, that you get your the money back. Yeah. Anyway, I decided that was it. I had to stop. I had to behave in a business-like manner. And I told them, come tomorrow for a meeting. And I rehearsed it. And that was it. I was going to tell them, very sorry. And they all turned up and they'd all 
didn't know what the meeting was about. They'd all got dressed up in their nicest clothes and washed and put their makeup on. Oh. All came and said, oh, OK, Simon, what is it? And I said, well, we've really got to break this thing, haven't we? <laughs> oh, God. It's not you, it's me. And it was another year and a half after that, too. Really? So, d- d- sorry, go on. No, it's just very difficult. You know, when you get to like people and they're so enthusiastic, it's very difficult. But I'm interested in this kind of self-absorption thing because presumably you're, you're also having to... You're reading interviews with them or watching interviews with them on television where they present themselves to the public as kind of fine, altruistic. Mm. <laughs> They're not that, those kind of people at all. Does that cause you great irritation? No, no. The point is you've got to look what your job is. As a manager, you're, you're employed, really. I mean, it may be a percentage and they may look, it may look as if you're in charge. And, and perhaps you are, but you're employed by the artist to make them a success commercially. And you, you, you mustn't deviate from that. I mean, the artist might come to you and he, he might be a drug addict or he might, might be any one of 50 things which are unpleasant or difficult for himself or for other people. But it's not your job to deal with that. It's your job to make him successful. And a lot of making him successful makes them not into nice people. I mean, you, we, we take them away from, from the ordinary life. We put them into hotel suites. We give them limousines. They don't talk to anybody. We have bouncers to stop anyone going to the hotel. We send groupies to their room for sex. And we get them drugs if they want them. That doesn't turn out a bunch of lovely, nice, socially-minded people. You know? And we teach them how to talk nicely to the press and sound as if they're altruistic. You, you, so we are talking about David Sylvian here, are we or not? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm just guessing. Well, I mean, I you, you know, anyway, talk about Bono, you know, who spends his life with, with uh, you two deciding how to dodge tax and the other half of his life telling everybody how he wants to feed the world. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a very reasonable point which you can't really defend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you, Mark was telling me you've got a theory that Bruce Springsteen's a fraud. No, 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 I didn't say that. What I said is that any artist becomes a fraud because he acts himself. You know, it's like Mick, Mick Jagger, before every Stone store, has to watch old Stones uh, performances and copy how he dances. He's, he doesn't remember how he dances. He, he's, just spent, he's just spent a year being a normal person walking. He's forgotten. Every time he's forgotten, he's every, he I wonder gets... what he thinks when he looks at that. He must think, that's ridiculous. <laughs> well, actually, I heard that the... the uh, the, the, the tribute group in Italy, which is the best Rolling Stones tribute group, it, actually the gut dance is so good then he now, he now goes over and works with him. And, oh, does he? <laughs> but um, it's not being a fraud, but you know, it, it, you watch a Bruce Springsteen concert, you know, and then it, the, the, it comes down silent and he stands there and he fingers his strings and, you know, always. He's just done this every bloody night for 15 years. You know. <laughs> you, it's got to be an act and not reality. You know, and he sings with such passion, you know, I spit on this lad. And then at the end, he's all happy and everybody cheers. Um, there's something incongruous about this anger when he's singing and then he's perfectly happy afterwards. I, I, I wasn't getting it. He's a great performer. But, no, but, but, we, but we have to accept that most, most all, all, all acts are, are, are theatre. What, what do we call them? They're acts. They're act. theater, it is an act. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's a fraud, but his, his passion is fraudulent and it is with most artists by that stage. But the audience don't want to believe that, do they? I don't think they care. You know, I used to think they care, but now when you look, you, you see so much now... A completely different thing, but it's still it's that point. One Direction are now now have the same sort of audience that the, the Bay City Runners once had, or the Beatles even once had. But the difference now is everyone at 10, 11, 12 years old, those kids know how the industry works. They know exactly how it works. They know all the manipulation which is going on to get them to be fans. But they still do it. So they don't care. And I think it's the same with the audience you're talking about. They, they don't have to believe that it's real. They just want to see it acted well. You don't really... You go and see the old Vic, you see someone playing Hamlet, you don't have to believe that really is Hamlet out there. You want to see him performing well. I think the audience will accept that. So you could probably argue that Bob Dylan is more honest than the Bruce Springsteen. Oh, Bob, because he goes he, on stage and simply is pretty much the person he is. He's great. In the movie he does a Christmas album. Night. Yeah, he does a Christmas album. Or he goes on. He goes on radio as a DJ in America and talks about problems he has with his hair falling out. He's fantastic. No, that's true. He's he's fairly transparent there. Yeah. So as as somebody who's worked in the music business for a long time and you know and made money and spent money and so forth. How do you look at the success of somebody like Simon Cowell? Do you think, I well, should the, have done the that? The music business is about getting it right, and, and Simon Cowell has got it right. And he has, from the first... I've known Simon really well for a long time, and from the first day, he's got this astonishing ability to 
to judge what will be a hit song. Not not at the not at the highest quality. Not those hit songs which come along and and sort of make you actually think that pop is art. They are the more trite and commercial songs. Although he's also able to to judge very well, judge a good singer who can really perform with passion. But he does has a knack of picking what will be a hit song. Uh, and he's got it right, and he's also solved the one problem the music industry had never solved in 200 years, which was payola. Because instead of paying somebody to popularise a song, you play the song on television before it's popular, and then the public pay the payola by phoning and giving you the money to put the record out. Right. So he's really done a service for the industry. <laughs> everyone's getting at him, but he's done a huge service for the industry. And, and how do you look at the future of the music industry? You think, you think the game's up? No, 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 no. No, look, the, the conclusion I put in the book is last year, the overall gross for uh, music purchased or money spent on music by the, throughout the world was $68 billion. The previous year was $64 billion. The previous year was about 60, 62 or 63. And all the record companies are telling you the, the business is at an end. That's rubbish. Record business may be at an end. And record companies probably are not going to be selling records much longer. And you can understand why they're upset because whereas publishing for every time a song's played a little minute amount, a few pennies come in and you have to be very good and put it in your piggy bank and let it mount up into millions, record companies have been good at that because they get 10,000% profit. They buy one penny's worth of vinyl and sell it for £10. That's a 10,000% profit. And to do that, oh, they, need a, they need a label and a song title and an artist. And they, they see all those things as just ingredients. And it's why they treat artists so badly, usually, because they don't really see this as music and an artist. They see it as units of But plastic. there was a time when, that, when the industry was run by people who... They may have made a lot of money, yes, they may they have been did. exploited, but they still loved music. In the you know, 60s, they got into it because they liked music. Would that the, be true in, now? Yes, no, in the 60s and 70s, it was amazing. Those record companies, Armitagel or Nathan or, or the Chess Brothers, uh, they, they were ruthless, self-interested hedonists, but they loved music. And definitely they were, they were looking after their own interests. They, all of them were. You know, they're not saints and they're revered in the music industry, but they, they weren't particularly good people, but they loved music. Uh, and they, because of that, they also they loved being with the artists and they re- treated the artists reasonably well and probably treated them better than most corporations did. But they sold out their companies and the, and the whole standard went down and down. You started getting uh, heads of companies who were lawyers and accountants but still loved music. And then you started getting heads of companies who didn't even know what music was, you know. And they just looked at the units, and it just got very, very much worse. And that's really where, where the whole thing went wrong. I mean, you quote uh, Tom Waits at the end of your book, a lovely quote where he's talking about <clears throat> people's um, in, in enthusiasm to get a, a contract. Yeah. Musician, young musicians say it's like crossing a, a, a river on the back of an alligator. Yeah, and they'll sign anything. You hear Tom Waits say yeah, <laughs> Listen, even today, you couldn't tell me anyone who's going to the music business, 16, 17, 18 years old, or any other age... Um, who doesn't know about it. They've heard all the stories, know that record companies sign 10 people for each one's a success. You look at it this way, a record co- records are always sign 10 artists for one person of a success. So you go to your record company and you get a deal. So you run, I've got a record contract. That's a 90% guarantee of failure. <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't really make any difference to people's behaviour, does it? They no. still want the That's deal. You know? It's like what you said about they need to believe in the arts. No, they just need to see the good performance. They need to see the record coming. They, they just don't want to believe it. They just, what Tom White said, they're so desperate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tom White's also said the large print giveth and the small print taketh away, doesn't well, he? Well, <laughs> I think it's probably so in the he, same... He put it in a song. That was actually, yeah. actually yeah. said first by some... Vicar in eight. Oh well, okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm sure everything goes but, uh, way that's back. That's certainly the case. Yeah. yeah. Can I just uh, just briefly talk about George Michael? Uh, you know who? who uh, I know. He took a, absolutely <laughs> took a huge uh, you know uh, gamble in, in taking on his record company over who owned his work and so mm. forth. Where do you stand on that? Are you sympathetic to to his? I was his case, but not in the way he took it on. Uh, he took it on because he, he walked in the office and he heard the head of the record company refer to him as a limey fag. And I said, you should take it on on the basis that you've got a 10-year contract and you should, if you're tied to a, place, a major corporation for 10 years, you've got to work for them for 10 years, you demand that you're treated with respect. There's respect. If, he, if, if Tommy Mottola, who said it, had said that to one of his employees, he'd have had the union take the whole building out on strike. It's the same thing I... You know, record companies do not look after their artists. And if you went to America, every single major record company um, 
will pay health insurance for every single employee. There's not one artist ever got health insurance. And so when George took the case, and that's what stimulated, that's what pushed him into doing it, I said, take it on that basis. But you know what lawyers are like? Oh, there's no precedent for winning a case that way. We've got to play safe. Let's go to the contracts and see if we can find something in the contract which is wrong. And they didn't win the case. So, uh, you know, he would have done better to take it honestly on what, on what upset him. On the subject of George Michael, so can I just butt in here? It must be so fascinating when you work with him all that time to see what happened to him after you'd stopped managing not well, he, necessarily that he, would have George, he has stayed essentially in the personality of an artist. I mean, neurotic, well, difficult, very up and very down, all combined into one character. But, but when you met him, when he must be around eighteen, did you? I mean, could you possibly imagine the same person to be driving uh, Range Rovers through the windows of Snappy Snaps in Hampstead? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the average. Just saying. <laughs> I think the average eighteen-year-old, any eighteen-year-old, is capable of driving a Range Rover. <laughs> sure, Hampstead. but you know. He was um, a little old. In, in, in a way, you know, despite his look, he, he stayed very, very adolescent. He behaves pretty much like an 18-year-old guy still, doesn't he? I mean, because, is that because a lot of pop stars are frozen in, in, in a, a Well, they usually are. They're, they're, yeah. you see, when they get their success, they're pretty well... You know, that's when they get locked in the hotel suite and they're, take, they're taken out. It's like, we do it. I mean, I'm, I apologise. don't apologise for it, but, you know, it's, it's, we take them out of normal society and they're cocooned and they, they stop developing. It's very tough for them to come back into it again later. One or two do, but not many. Does everybody know the story of how Wham! came about? Because I, I actually didn't know this, that, that, that George was never going to be in the group. It's a complete oh, revelation. Well, it's amazing. Well, when George was uh, 11, he was sent to a new school in Bushy, and George was a podgy little kid with, with glasses and curly hair, a Greek father who ran a restaurant. And, um, and he was put sitting next to Andrew, and Andrew was the, the young sort of lad around the classroom, you know and uh, good-looking and very, very popular. And George just instantly looked up and said, I want to be like that. And bit by bit, over the next two or three years, George, uh, he, he lost weight and he got his mum to buy him some hair, stra- hair straightening and, and put contact lenses in, and he ended up looking pretty good. Uh, and they were very friendly. They had a third friend there, David Austin, who's still around, who actually is That's right. jo- uh, George's yeah. personal manager now, who wrote songs. And George and David wrote songs, and Andrew joined in the writing of the songs. They wrote songs from a group which was going to be David and Andrew and maybe somebody else. Uh, they were going to be, you know, real sort of nice, young, heterosexual guys around town having a lot of fun. And, uh, and so George and was never going to be, he was going to be the Sven Garley George, George, wasn't, George wanted to write songs. He was Backwards. obsessed with pop and loved writing songs. He never occurred to be in a group and he couldn't even sing. And... The group got underway and it didn't quite work and the third person left and then David didn't want to do it just with Andrew. And then finally George had all these songs and he said, well, I'll do it with Andrew because by then George looked okay, you know, just a matter of having the confidence. But George didn't have confidence to get up on stage. Uh, he needed Andrew to, to, you know, to be next to him to have the confidence to get up there. And you don't remember it now, but the whole first year we managed, uh, I managed Wham!, uh, Andrew was the one who got streamed up. George didn't get streamed up. They went on stage and everyone said, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. Not George at all. And he, he learned. I mean, he's a very quick learner. He learned what to do on stage to get the screams and he dyed his hair blonde, grew it very long and blonde and put earrings in and he suddenly looked much more characterful. Does the screaming suddenly uh, increase? Yeah, he got his confidence. But of course... Uh, and he was absolutely right not to come out. I would, I, I, he didn't even discuss it with me, but if he had, I just said, don't come out. Because, you know, normally in, in pop music... Uh, it has to be real. You, you can't fake... You, it's not like movies. You can't pretend to be somebody else. When you come out of your house in the morning, there's paparazzi. If you're a fake character, the, the pop world has been littered with people whose managers have said, do this and do this, and it's, it's not their real image, the real character. They go mad. I mean, they give, me, give me some examples of that. Well, the, going back to Larry Pounds, Larry Pounds had two artists who ended up in, in um, psychiatric treatment just for that because he imposed these images on them, which they just weren't, you know, being tough or... or Whatever. Were they ones that we would have heard of? Did they have hits? Or? I can't watch two. They were, but there, there, it was, there was certainly two cases where his artist did, and it was straight from that, you know, just trying to make somebody what they're not is very difficult to live with. Not like being an actor on stage where you can go home and be yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so George found this very, very difficult being in Wham! And, and, but initially he was absolutely right to stick with it because that's what the, that's what the act was, that's what the imagery, everything was dedicated to being these two lads around town. 
And, uh, you know, the thing about George coming out later, I mean, everybody, everyone around George knew what he was. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't even very private. I mean, he'd, he'd go out in the evenings with his boyfriend and, and you know, the, Andrew and all the people around him knew. But he, he was probably right just not to do it. And then in the end he thought, well, rather than say it and then to try to change the whole image of Wan, we'll just bring Wan to an end and I'll become myself. But then he was faced with another problem because he, he still couldn't go back to being the George he really was. He, he, he just by himself now had to become the George which used to be in Wan. So George Michael also at that stage wasn't quite a real character, which is why he went on fighting with this problem inside himself. I, I'm going to ask you one final question, actually, before we we wrap up because Simon's got to sign some books and so forth. Who's the most impressive artist that you've, you, you've met in pop music? Well, you're always more impressed by the ones you don't manage because you don't see all the downsides. <laughs> um, ever? Well, I've got to say George is very impressive. He's the only artist I've known in my entire time in the music business who can produce himself. Others have tried. Paul McCartney tried to produce himself. You, it's in most of it. He's got more self-knowledge about his ability and his art than anyone else I've seen. He knows exactly what songs he can do well and what he can't. He produces himself. He's been very clever never to write a song for anybody else because if he did and it wasn't a hit, then the, 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 you know, the burden might fall on his song. And people say he, his songwriter is going off, so he sticks to keeping his own songs for himself. Um, so, yeah, he's very impressive. And um, oh, one or two others, and it, 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 you know, anyone you've ever seen that you wish you'd managed, you thought that. Is well, you know, it, the problem is when you manage people, you always find so many aspects of their character you'd rather not have around you that you presume that anyone you wish you'd manage. I mean, it's nice wishing you could manage them. You wouldn't like to spoil it, but actually doing it, you know. I mean, um, when I was when we were making the video of uh, Killer Whisper in Miami. Oh, I, uh, George, uh, when we were at their biggest at that moment oh they were in the UK and so we allowed six journalists to come we gave them press passes and said you can come and go and be around and go everywhere the group go and uh, on the third night you're in Miami one of these journalists came over and said I hope you don't mind I want to give you a tape gave me cassette tape and I was really angry because I said look you're, you know, this is not what you're meant to be doing you're here as a journalist you know, so don't do this and I slung the tape away uh, unfortunately, it was Neil Tennant, and what he was giving me was the Pet Shop Boys' first album. And um, I've got to say, the Pet Shop Boys are absolutely one of the all-time favourites of mine in the last 30 years, and uh, I loved that album. And, um, but, and I'm very good friends with Neil, but would I be if I'd managed him? I don't know. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> absolutely true. You probably would. Well, yeah. look, that's, that's all we've got time for. The book's called Tarara Bumdie. And it's not about most of what we talked about. It is the history of the music business. It's the history of the music business. It covers all kinds of things, things we talked about, things we, we, you know, we didn't talk about. Uh, would you please thank Simon A.B. Bell. And I think Simon's going to be hanging around. Uh, there's a little table out there uh, through the door where uh, he'll be signing copies of his book if uh, anybody hasn't got it. Uh, it's a thumping good read. Thanks very much indeed to everybody for coming along this evening. And uh, this will be out as a podcast as soon as we can get it organised. Thanks very much for being here. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.